Like I said, you can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, we'll be uh, looking at our, our text, just kind of introducing it this morning, just so you know. So I kind of redid this outline several times, and actually we did it this morning, so I had to print them out and put them back in the bulletin. Uh, but sometimes God does that for whatever reason, and so um, we're ready to go. But I would ask if you could stand in honor of God's word. I just want to read verses 13 to 18, and, uh, and follow along in your Bibles as I read this from the Apostle Paul. This is the word of God, but we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, Until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that it would be an encouragement to our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This message this morning is mostly, like I said, an introduction to this passage because there's a lot that we have to lay down first so we are all on the same page and we understand what we're talking about. A lot of people read this passage and it's known as the what? The rapture passage, right? And that comes from that word there, caught up, that we see that we will be caught up and it describes a future time when Jesus Christ will return in the clouds, it says. His foot won't come to earth, but he will be in the clouds. It's very distinct. And it says that he will rapture or he will snatch away, we will be caught away to him. He will gather the church, all those who have come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior throughout the church age, will be caught up. This is called the rapture. Um, And we'll be talking about that a little bit more. Most of us are familiar with it. I put a little graphic there in your outline just to kind of show you the timeline of the end times in which we will be approaching this. There's a lot of different viewpoints, and we're going to talk about some of those today. But um, from my understanding of Scripture, I think it does boil down to one. And I think that, you know, you can't necessarily be dogmatic on it because there's some information we're not given in Scripture. But this whole study of end times is called, in theology, it's called eschatology. Eschatology. And you get it from the Greek word estos, which means last things. Enology, which is a group of, of study. So we're going to be looking at some eschatology, and it's a study of what Scripture teaches about the end times, what will come. If you want to have a conference as well attended, just have a conference on prophecy. Doesn't matter what, just that word alone will gather people, right? People are interested, they want to know. Inquiring minds want to know what's to come, what's going to happen. And the Bible doesn't unveil all this truth to us, but it does give us glimpses of it. 
And so that's what we're going to dial down on as we go through this, this text. And the church needs teaching in eschatology. It needs to understand what's happening. I heard a comedian one time years ago, back in the early 80s, at a, at a uh, presentation he was giving. He gave all these different views. And he goes, oh, I know, I'm a pantheist. It's all going to pan out in the end. And I thought, well, that's not a really uh, very mature way uh, or responsible way to handle Scripture, just saying, well, who cares? Um, no, it's, it's really eschatology, eschatology is the capstone, you could say. It's the crown, all right, of systematic theology, which is an understanding of, of what the Bible teaches us concerning different things. Anthropology is the study of man. All right. You have the study of eschatology. You have Christology, which is the study of Christ. Theology, which is the study of God. Okay, pneumatology, study of Holy Spirit. You have all these different groups of study. And somebody's put them all together and they gathered all the scriptures and said, basically, this makes sense. It's systematic theology. There's nothing wrong with that. Some people say, well, that's doctrine. We don't want to focus on doctrine. No, we have to focus on doctrine. If you're not going to be willing to focus on doctrine, what are you going to focus on? And so eschatology helps Christians, it reminds them that this world is not our home, right? And it it helps us to look beyond what's presently going on and what we have looked forward to in heaven where we will be one day with Christ and his people forevermore. So you better learn to deal with it now. Because if you think going to heaven, you're going to escape things. You're not. You're going to be with the same people you're with now in the church. So figure it out. Um, but in way of introduction, I just want to share with you six ways eschatology helps us as believers. Six ways eschatology helps us as believers. And I think that's on the back of your outline there. And I was, that's why I redid the outline because I have these six ways. I thought, well, I'll put them in there. Eschatology, first of all, it helps to teach the church. Now, if you know anything about our church, we're a teaching church. We like people to learn and understand scripture and understand principles about biblical principles they can apply to their lives and grow in their faith. And the church needs the teaching of eschatology or end times, end things, because it's really the the crown of systematic theology. Everything leads up to that, right? We know how it ends in the end. And guess what? We're on the right side. If you're on the right side, if you've trusted in Christ, then you're on the winning team. And you don't have to fret. You don't have to worry at night what the politicians are doing or what's happening to the earth. Or I mean, who cares? In the end, we want to be a good steward of what God has entrusted. Don't, don't get me out of context. But at the same time, I'm not going to invest a whole lot in this earth because this earth is definitely passing away, whether we want it to or not. So the church neglects to teach Christians about eschatology a lot of times because it's controversial. You know, uh, nobody likes controversy. And so the Bible does leave some open ends here when it comes to eschatology. We don't know everything, but we don't have the mind of Christ either yet. And so it creates a dangerous vacuum, I would say, when churches don't teach about it. Because then you have all sorts of things floating around and nobody really understands what the Bible teaches. And so that's what we want to focus on. It's not so much what we believe, but it's what does the Bible teach. And this morning, I just want to give you kind of an overview of some of the things that people are teaching that all would be kind of within the realm of these are believers that believe this. They believe the Bible to be the word of God. 
But at the same time, they have misunderstandings on certain things. One theologian said, eschatology sheds light on every biblical doctrine and answers questions that every theologian uh, raises up. And that's, that's very true. And so it's important to teach the church eschatology. Secondly, I put down there, eschatology helps Christians to what? To worship God. That's what we want to do. That's what we're all about. The end of all theology, which is the study of God, including eschatology, is what? What are we going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be worshiping. You know, sometimes you hear people, wow, you know, you guys sing too many songs. You have too, many, too much time singing. Well, what do you think you're going to be doing in heaven for all eternity? That's going to be a big part of it anyway. It's not all we're going to be doing, obviously, but it's going to be a big part of it. And so eschatology is concerned with the area of biblical truth about the defeat of Satan, about the final and perfect judgment of Christ that he will carry out, about the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal fellowship we have with Christ. You know, sometimes we used to get people to come to our door and, hey, will you sign this petition to save a tree? It's like, no, thanks. Well, you don't want to save a tree? No. Why? You're not interested in saving the earth? No. Why? Well, if you believe the Bible, Jesus says it's all going to be destroyed. And we're going to start all over. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. So I'm not really interested in that. I want to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to us because it's his creation. But at the same time, I'm not going to worship it. And if you wonder where the worship of creation comes from, look at Romans 1 and what it leads to. Okay? When you are more concerned about the temperature outside than the slaughter of unborn babies, you've got a problem, a big problem. So eschatology helps us to worship God. Thirdly, eschatology helps Christians to serve the Lord with zeal for biblical truth. In other words, it reminds us of the second coming of Christ, that he is coming back. He's returning for us. That's both good and dangerous, you could say, really. Um, It's good in the fact that it reminds Christians, it reminds the people of God that that there is an end coming of all the things that we see unraveling. It's not going to last forever. And so it reminds us that we have to be busy about what? Serving him on a daily basis. Because Sooner or later, there's going to come a time in an age when the Lord returns, and he's going to call us out of here, and guess what? We're not going to be able to do that anymore. Okay, so now we have to take the most time we can, make it a priority to serve him. So that's a good thing. But the bad aspect of that is that it can lead to, you could call, call it fatalism, all right, a fatalistic understanding which leads to inactivity. And basically all you're doing is sitting in the pew in the service uh, and not doing anything because, well, God's coming back anyway, so who cares? So what's the use? God's sovereign. And so it can lead to that apathetic attitude as well, which we don't want to happen in our own hearts. But when you have a biblical understanding of eschatology, it's kind of exciting because it really motivates you as a Christian with a greater passion to what? To, to go out and to, to share the faith, to, to witness. Because you realize that by, by bringing someone to Christ, by your, by your being obedient to the Great Commission, you're going out and you're sharing the gospel with someone who's yet 
to come to Christ and God uses you to draw them to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and you see that person come to Christian, guess what? That's one more Christian that is closer. We're one more Christian closer to the Lord's return because the Lord's not going to return until all the elect are saved. And so you don't want to just sit by in the arms of grace and say, ah, God's got it covered. No, he, he enlists our involvement to volunteer, to save time for the sharing of the gospel, to have a passion for those people who are lost. Not, not the kind of attitude that looks at them, those who without Christ, and say, oh, well, they'll get what they deserved. I've heard Christians say that. And I'll say, well, you just better be thankful you don't get what you deserve, too. <laughs> right? Because none of us deserve anything from God but his judgment. And so we have to be on the same page. But it motivates us to have a passion for lost souls. It motivates us to worship. It's wonderful to come together as the body of Christ on a Sunday and begin to sing hymns and praises to him and to hear scripture read and pray and fellowship with one another. That should be the highlight of your week as a Christian. Not the only highlight, but it should be one of the highlights. So we have a passion for lost souls. We have a, you're motivated to worship. But then it also, I think, eschatology, when you have a proper understanding of it, it helps us live really for the glory of God before his face. Because we know he's returning. You know, remember when you were younger, maybe a teenager and mom and dad went out of town? And you thought maybe you'd try something you couldn't try when mom and dad were there. And what was your main concern? When are they coming home? Right? When are they coming back? Because, you know, if you had a party, you got it all cleaned up. Or if you did something, you you had to have everything in order when mom and dad were coming home. So it's good to focus on the fact that, you know what? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back here. And he's going to take us home to be with him. We don't want to be caught off guard. We want to be caught doing what the Lord expects us to be doing. Think about that the next time you have a temptation to give in to sin. Wow, if I was doing this sin and the Lord came back right now, well, you know, I mean, you'd still be saved if you're truly a believer, but at the same time, you know what? Might be a little, little shame there. You know, wow, that, that's, that's unfortunate. We don't want to be caught in that place. Well, not only does it really uh, teach the church and help us to worship God but, but, and, and serve him with zeal, but also... It helps Christians to hope in the Lord during times of trouble. I mean, as believers, we face all kinds of situations, all kinds of trials, all kinds of um, tribulations. Um, you know, some face disease, some face pain, some over the years have faced injustice. All these things believers face. All kinds of different kinds of things. And it's vital to understand and to have hope in the final resurrection and the final glorification of ourselves to keep us enduring, as the Bible says, to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved, it says. And so it helps us when we understand eschatology, when we understand what the Bible says about the end times, it helps Christians to hope in the Lord during times of trouble. All right, knowing that this is going to be over soon. We don't, we're not stuck here forever. God is coming back. Christ is coming back for his church. What a glorious day that will be. Fifth 
Last thing here, or uh, yeah, next to last thing. Eschatology helps Christians to prepare for the lost, prepare the lost for judgment. It helps Christians prepare the lost for judgment. See, eschatology is not as critical. It's not as critical as our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's very critical. I mean, your whole salvation, right, weighs on that. You can understand and believe certain things about eschatology. Some people do, a lot of people do, that aren't even, they're not even biblical things, but they believe them. That doesn't mean they're not a Christian, okay? Because eschatology is kind of secondary to our salvation, all right? Uh, It's important that we understand that going into this. But even though it's not as critical as our understanding of Christ and his work, I think eschatology does provide a foundation for a fully biblical worldview. If you, if you think that God has left you here, just for example, as the church, to make this place better, and it's only going to get better, and some people who believe in, in some of these things that we're going to talk about actually believe that. They believe that right now the world is getting better. Go figure. I don't know how they figure that out, but that's what they say. And then when it's really, 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 really good, that's when Jesus comes back. That doesn't make any sense to me. And some of them even believe that Satan is bound now. It's like, well, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and say, no, Satan's definitely not bound anywhere. And those people who are binding Satan Satan aren't doing a very good job in my mind. Or somebody's unbinding him, I don't know. That's, that's kind of crazy talk. But it's important to understand that it, it gives us a perspective to help us prepare unbelievers for judgment. In other words, it's good to talk about these things. Because the people of God understand eschatology and, and how they understand it, it impacts basically how the unfolding plan of God and the word of God works, is active in their own life. Uh, a lot of people don't think they need to prepare for their last days. And so when you understand what the last days are going to be, you can tell other people how to prepare. First and foremost, it's, it's good to think about Christ. And your relationship or your lack of relationship with him. And get that straightened out. Um, when you understand eschatology properly, there's a, there's a lot of people just think, well, it's a hands-off thing. It's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at, look at 1 Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. A couple books to the right there. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. See, Satan is described as one who comes to steal, to destroy, and he's very, very, very successful at lying to the lost, those outside of Christ. Um, And they think, you know what, that they're okay in their sins apart from Christ. Look at what it says in verse 8, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's that's a pretty scary description of the enemy. He's not just laying there in the field somewhere, munching on some grass. No, it says that he is... 
our adversary. He says he's prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's very hungry. He's going to devour someone. Verse 9 tells us how we deal with that. Resist him. Doesn't say go and hunt him down, cast him out, bind him. It doesn't say that. It says resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, you're no different than anybody else. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Bible, though it it speaks differently at times about some of these subjects, it does tell us that everyone, everyone apart from Christ is what? Dead in their sins. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. You're spiritually dead. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And you turn over there and follow along because it's a... Seven verses, it's good to follow along when I read these verses to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, plus I just like to hear the pages turn. Um, verse, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. This is talking to believers, but it's describing their former condition before Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, just naturally, were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, you're nobody different. But God, and it's always funny when you hear somebody say, oh, you know, that that person has such a good heart. No, they don't. They're, they have just as sinful a heart as you do. They may be disguising it a little better than you do, but it's there. And this is what verse 4 says. It says, but God, I always say thank God for the buts in Scripture, and this is one of them, but God, being rich in mercy. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. Grace is what? God giving us what we don't deserve. So here is speaking of God's mercy. He's withholding what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve death. We deserve hell because of our sin. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love that verse because it negates any idea that somehow you can clean yourself up good enough and then God will accept you on your own. You know, you, you often hear sometimes maybe people are going through a hard time, maybe it's, you know, substance abuse, maybe it's others and whatever it might be in their own lives. And you say, you know, you need to get plugged into church and you need to come to know the Lord. Ah, I got you know, to clean myself up first. I got to get everything. I can't come to church this way. No, you can. You can, trust me. Because God will change you if you're willing to be changed. And this is exactly what it's saying. It's saying that, you know what? 
God didn't expect us to clean ourselves up because we were dead. A dead person can't clean themselves up. It's impossible. But we were made, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He gave us something we don't deserve. He gave us something we don't deserve. In verse 6, and it says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, it's only by grace through Christ and Christ alone that anyone can be saved. The Bible is very clear. It doesn't, it doesn't have any gray area here. And you say, well, that, that sounds you know, very hard. Well, that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus said. That's what Throughout Acts, we see that, Acts 16, 31, it says, and they said, when talking about the jailer, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and even your own household, okay? It's not in the name of Buddha, it's not in the name of the Pope, it's not in the name of anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby whereby we have to put our faith, our trust in what he's done for us on Calvary, and therefore, he will save us. Romans chapter 10, verses 7 to 16, says this, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. In other words, who's, who's going to be good enough to get up there? Or 7 says, Or who will descend to the abyss? That is trying to bring Christ up from the dead or bring him down from heaven. Verse 8 says, But what does it say? It doesn't focus on those things, but it says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess, look at this, with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved, period, without a doubt. You don't have to wonder about it. And it tells us, verse 10, for with the heart... One believes. Notice it's the heart. It's not just the mind. There's a lot of people today in churches, sitting in church, sermon after sermon, Sunday after Sunday, they believe up here. But that's as far as it goes. They don't believe in their hearts. They're not saved. They know all the theology in the world, but they're not saved. I heard one guy say some of the the most proficient theologians who write books and things, a lot of them aren't even saved. <laughs> they have all the head knowledge. They have doctors' degrees coming out their ears. But when it boils right down to it, some of them aren't saved. And you have to ask that question. Do I believe in my heart? Am I saved? That's a good question to ask. The Bible says to be sure that you're in the faith. And it says, verse 11 For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who can call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. See, this is, we have, sometimes we have problems with verses like this because in our theology, we know, well, wait a minute, what about the elect? And doesn't God choose us before the foundation of the world? And oh, yes, yes, yes. But the Bible also says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, period. Amen. You can't negate that. 
It doesn't make sense in our mind. But in the mind of God, it does. And then he, verse 14, he even goes on, he says, well, how are they going to call on him if they've never believed in him? And how are they going to believe on him of whom they never heard? See, and this is where Paul kind of brings it home. And how are they to hear without someone, what? Preaching. And by the way, that's not just preachers. We're all called to be preachers out in the world, sharing the gospel. Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Notice it says the good news. It's not the news of judgment. It's not the news that, you know, oh, you're, you're turn and burn and all. No, it's the good news. What's the good news? The, the fact that Christ came and he lived a perfect life here on earth for 30-some years. Then he willfully went to the cross and he took all of our sins, all those who would ever put their faith and their trust in Christ were placed upon him. And he did it willingly. He didn't have to do it, but he did it willingly because of his love for us. And God, for a moment in time, treated his own son who was perfect without sin in every way as if he had committed every sin by every person who had ever put their faith or trust in Christ. That's how he treated him. That's why he had to turn away. He couldn't even look at his own son. It's hard to understand. But that's the only way our sins could be paid for. And that's the good news. That he did willingly go to the cross. He did die physically. They did bury him in a tomb. And the third day, what happened? He rose from the dead, just as he promised. No one took advantage of Christ. No one really even killed Christ. He said that himself. I give up my life of my own accord. Nobody takes it from me. We don't need to feel sorry for the crucified Christ. That's what I don't understand about the, the Catholic faith. You walk into a Catholic church, and what do you see? You see a cross, and there's poor Jesus hung out there for everybody to see. I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's not even three-quarters of the story. That's not even half of the story. I mean, that's an important part of the story, the crucifixion, but it doesn't end there. That's why there's no figure hanging on our cross here, because he's not on the cross anymore. That's why I don't call myself a priest. That's why I'm not here performing some hocus-pocus, bringing Christ through the host out of heaven back to earth so that we can crucify him, sacrifice him all over again on an altar. We don't do that. Why? Because Jesus was the final sacrifice. We don't need an altar. You know, you don't have to bow the knee when you cross the, the aisle here like you do in some churches. So you have to have a good understanding of that first. And that's what he says. He says, how are they going to hear if they're not sent? Verse 16, he continues in Romans 10, and he says this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. This is so important because a lot of people think, well, all they got to do is believe the gospel. No. No. You need to obey the gospel. And that's what we're going to see the Thessalonians did. 
You need to obey the gospel. You need to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. You need to give up on your own self and put all your trust in him for your salvation. Stop trying to clean yourself up. And then he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why do we teach the Bible? Why do we teach predominantly the New Testament? Because they're the words of Christ. We want people to understand that. We want people to have faith. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, for by, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And why did he have to give us a gift? Because if he didn't give us a gift, if somehow we could earn it, we would be boasting about what we just earned. When you go to work and it becomes Friday and you get paid, you know, your employer doesn't come in with your check on a big cart and go, wow, congratulations, you're just such a wonderful employee. We're going to give you this piece of paper that says, you know, here's $1,000 for your work this week. No. Why? Because you earned it. You put in the 40, 60, 80 hours, whatever you needed to do to earn that income. He doesn't congratulate you. That's something he owes you. That's why this is not something that we've earned. It's something that's gifted to us. So could your employees say, here's your check. Could they mail your check? Yes. Guess what? What do you have to do? You have to decide to either take a little picture of it and do the mobile deposit or go down to the teller and give it to the teller and say, here, put this in my bank. If you don't do that, guess what? After 90, 120 days, the employer is going, okay, he doesn't want his paycheck. He's not going to get his paycheck. I'm not going to bother him about it. <laughs> right? He's not, he, hey, did you cash your check yet? Hey, you got to cash that check, you know. I'm trying to pay you. No, he doesn't care. If you don't want your money, don't take your money. But you have to receive it. All right? Same thing with salvation. And see, eschatology motivates Christians to prepare the lost for this unavoidable judgment that's coming. And so through the gospel, we're able to share this because we know what's on the horizon. If the lost will not receive Christ, if they will not believe on his name and all that he's done and his finished and sufficient work on Calvary, then the Bible says they will go to a place called hell. A place of unending, unrelenting, conscience, eternal punishment. This is not a place you want to go to. It's not going to be a party with your friends. You will be isolated from everyone. You know, one thing a lot of times they'll do in prison is that they put people in what? Confinement, right? It's solitary confinement. What's that mean? You you don't have any contact with humans at all. A little door opens and they throw a plate of slop under the door to you and that's it. That's all you see. You don't see their hands. You don't see nothing. And what's it meant to do? It's meant to punish you. It's meant to break you down because there's nothing worse than being isolated. Can you imagine being in eternity isolated from everyone that you have known, from any other human being? And it's not like you're just sleeping there. No, you're, you're enduring unending, unrelenting, conscious, eternal punishment. And the Bible goes into depth and describes hell as a very real and literal place. You don't want to go there. 
And I call on you to, to cry out to Christ for forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you for your sins. Don't try to pay for your own sins. It's not going to work out in the end. And so that message should be on the heart of us as believers that we have, you know, been removed from God's judgment because of Christ. Not because of something we've done, but because of Christ. And we don't have to endure his wrath and his judgment any longer. That's why the Bible never speaks of believers, of those who put their faith or trust in Christ, as having to endure the wrath of God or his judgment in any way. Because Christ received the full payment. He received the full wrath of God for our sins. We may be disciplined, right? As a loving father disciplines his child. The Bible speaks of that. But we're not under judgment. And that's very important for believers to understand. Because I've, frankly, I've met some believers. And they're, you know, maybe have a little hard time or whatever. And, and, and they, they'll say things like this. Well, I just think God's judging me. God must be judging me. And I always tell them the same thing. Well, you know what? That's impossible if you know Christ. If you don't know Christ, then you, yeah, you're, you're under the judgment of God, and you will be for all eternity unless you turn to the Savior. But don't be tricked into thinking as a believer you're something you're not. You're not an object of God's judgment any longer. And that's very important to understand. And when you understand eschatology properly, it encourages you in, in that way. Last thing, eschatology helps Christians to look forward to heaven. Amen? Amen. Um, a lot of times we get so focused on this earth, we get so focused on what the economy, what the stock market, what, whatever, okay, uh, political parties, what, whatever it might be, we get so focused on that, we end up, it just sucks the joy right out of our lives. And the Bible says, you know what? When you focus and you understand eschatology properly, it helps us to look forward to heaven. You realize how temporary this place is and that we have to redirect our priorities. I mean, it's nothing wrong with planning for retirement. It's nothing wrong with, you know, living, you know, and enjoying certain things in this world. But at the same time, you have to realize this is temporary. Is this, is this really where you want to make your investment? And so it brings that back. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil entice us every day, 24-7, to believe their claims rather than what the Bible says. Rather than biblical theology. So why does eschatology matter? It helps remind Christians that this world isn't our home. And look beyond it toward heaven where we will be with Christ and we'll be with his people forever and always. Amen. And this is what we want to do here is we want to kind of give you a little foundation today of what we have to look forward to. Um, To sum it up there, I I think I put it on the, the first part of your outline. All true Christians agree that Jesus Christ will come back boldly. Bodily, excuse me, in power and glory. All true Christians believe that Christ will come back bodily. And they believe in a physical return of Jesus Christ. But there are some differences. And this we just want to go over quickly. Um, 
as long as a person believes that Jesus will come back bodily, then you know what? That shouldn't tear our fellowship apart. They may have a different viewpoint. That's okay. They can be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we want to be focused on what the Bible says, right? And, and to be honest, and to be frank, sometimes the Bible's it, it doesn't give us all the answers. All right? It gives us a lot of them. But sometimes you have to kind of read into certain things or whatever. And I don't think any theological person would say, oh, no, 100%. This is totally 100% what the Bible teaches. It's not, it's not as black and white as salvation is. You know, we can teach salvation. We can teach the gospel very authoritatively because Jesus himself, you know, you can't, you can't come to the Father except you come through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, well, there's some other ways, and you can figure those out on yourself. No, he said, there's only one way. Well, when it comes to eschatology and the understanding of all this, there are different viewpoints. So all true Christians agree that Jesus will come back bodily in power and glory. And, and this is uh, kind of the major approach, the overview, you might say. Believers that believe in the Bible will at least believe in that. Um, after his trial, Jesus told the Sanhedrin, he says, I tell you, uh, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Christ himself spoke of this. He was referring to Daniel 7.14, which predicts the Messiah's kingdom will be everlasting. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the disciples were told by an angel who... They literally watched Jesus go up into heaven, okay, at his ascension. And they said, this Jesus, the angel said, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come, look at what it says, in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He ascended bodily, he will return bodily. Every born-again believer in the Bible will believe that. Christians understand the details of all that a little differently sometimes. But if you deny the bodily return of Christ, that, that would be considered heresy. That'd be like saying, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, you're not a Christian then. Okay, you can't be a Christian. So to give you an overview, that little diagram there tells us where we're at in the timeline. Okay, you have the church period there. Talks about in Revelation 1 to 3 church on earth. And then basically, as Christians, we, we believe that at, at a certain time, we don't know when this time will be. The, we, we call it the uh, imminent return of Jesus Christ. And, and we believe that he will come back in the clouds, as our passage says. And we call that the rapture of the church. God removes his church from the earth. And after that, um, in heaven, you have the whole judgment seat of Christ going on. But on earth, you have seven years of what we would call tribulation. First three and a half years, and then you have a great tribulation, which is considered the last three and a half years. And then we believe that after the tribulation completes itself, you have Jesus Christ who this time, he doesn't just come in the clouds, but he returns physically to earth, the Bible says. He comes down and he puts his foot on the earth. At the rapture, in, in our verses here today, Jesus comes, it says, in the clouds, and we're called to be with him. 
So he returns physically, and that's when he begins to rule and reign for a thousand years here on this earth. And then you have the final rebellion and judgment, and then you have the eternal state. That's a very, very, very dialed down, uh, uh, basic view of what we would believe. But secondly, I, I just wanted to point out that Christians do disagree, and we'll do this in the closing moments here, um, on specifics when it comes to Bible prophecy. And there's, there's three main views here. And like I said, this is just an overview of this leading up into this passage. But there's three main views concerning the Lord's return. And like I said, I'm not saying if you believe one of these, other than what we believe, you're not a believer. I'm not saying that. I can't say that. Okay, because that's not what your salvation depends on. But these three views, the first one is, is the post-millennialist view. And they believe that Jesus will return after a time of widespread acceptance of the gospel. According to this view, the gospel in this church age will grow. And it will grow like a, like a little mustard seed becomes big. Okay, Or someone said it will spread like leaven in dough. And it permeates until it permeates the whole earth. And, and the goal is to have the whole world Christianized. That's what their goal is in post-millennial belief. Um, they believe that the millennial age in which God's kingdom will come to earth will last, and this is how they explain it, they say it will last for a long time. They don't say a thousand years like the Bible says. Because they don't believe in that literal interpretation. They say, well, where, where it says that, um, you know, Revelation, it's, it could be allegorical, it could be this, it could be that. Well, it says a thousand years. I believe it's a thousand years. And then they believe at the end of this time, after this long period of time, Christ will return to resurrect the dead for judgment, and then he'll usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And so it's envisioned by this millennium is envisioned these thousand years as very different than us who would hold to a, a premillennial view, return of Christ. Um, the, the, the conditions on earth will not be substantially changed in their view, except for the majority of believers that they say will bring about a culture of righteousness but they don't believe that Jesus will bodily reign in Jerusalem on the throne of David because they can't believe that because they don't believe he returns until the end of the millennium. So they don't have that going for them. Um, they also teach that people will still be in their normal bodies. And they have to teach that because they believe the resurrection of the living and the dead happens at the return of Christ. That won't happen until after the millennium. Um, they don't believe in a final rebellion against Christ. Um, really, the, the millennium will be much like our world today, you might say. Except that the gospel, in their view, would be spread to the whole world. Um, there's a lot of people who, who hold to this view uh, throughout history. A lot of the reformers did. A lot of the Puritans did. People like Matthew Henry uh, the Wesley brothers, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, Charles Hodge. So when you read these people, it doesn't mean that all their theology is garbage. These are very intelligent, very bright men. But they did hold this view for whatever reason. 
And you can, you know, you can talk to somebody who holds this view and knows what they're talking about, and a lot of them can dance, you know, circles around you theologically with their verses. But so that's one view. The the post-millennial view rests on God's purpose on being glorified in his creation. So they put a lot of a lot of emphasis on this world, what we see around us. Um It has a strong hope in the power of the gospel to spread and transform lives. They believe that. It encourages evangelism with the hope that God will bless the gospel. And because the more people that are saved in their view, that's the only time when Christ can come back. So it kind of motivates them that way. Um, But I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see this holding up to Scripture, because against this view, against the post-millennial view, the idea that Jesus is coming back after the millennium, um, is really the picture of end times in the New Testament. When you when you look at the end times throughout the New Testament, it speaks of godlessness. It speaks of a persecution of the godly, increasing, not decreasing, like they want. Um, and the world conditions don't reflect any sort of righteousness in my mind. I don't think the world's getting better. I mean, that's, that's not, it doesn't, you don't have to have a doctor's degree to figure that one out, right? So it's, it's pretty basic. And so they're holding on to some things, and I, I think that it's really uh, harmful because they don't believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture a lot of times. Um, but secondly, you have not just the post-millennial view, but you have the all-millennial view, all meaning no, and they believe that there's no earthly millennium. There's nothing that's going to happen that way at all. Because they believe that Jesus is now reigning spiritually over his kingdom. So they don't believe in a thousand year reign of Christ. They don't believe in any of that. So that's why you have the ah millennial view. Ah meaning no view. No, they don't believe in a millennium. And this was a predominant view throughout church history. Really up until the Reformation. Um, they believe that the thousand years in Revelation 20 refers to the current church age. That's what they believe, when Satan's influence over the nations have been bound. So if you talk to a true amillennialist, they say, oh no, Satan's bound now. It doesn't make any sense in my mind. And because he's bound, that's why the gospel is freely able to be shared and spread amongst every nation. Uh, They would say that Christ's kingdom began when he was on earth. That's what they would refer to it as. And they would say now he's reigning from heaven over his church. But there is a future fulfillment of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. So they kind of split hairs on that. Uh, They don't believe in a literal future of a seven-year worldwide tribulation. They say, no, that's, that's allegorical. We don't believe in that literally. Uh, Some amillennialists say that at the end of this age, Satan will be released for a time, leading to the deception of the nations, Armageddon, and the physical return of Christ. So they're not all on the same page of what they believe as far as all these things sorting themselves out. And they say this will be followed by the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked for judgment. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth. And, and their argument goes this way. The millennialists will tell you, because the Jews rejected their Messiah, they rejected Jesus, that the kingdom was taken away from them. 
and given to a believing nation. And the believing nation is who? The church, in their mind. That's what they're saying. So they're saying God is punishing the Jews, and he took away anything that they had a right to as God's people, and now that's all transferred to the church. We know that theologically is what we call replacement theology. And what that teaches is that the church replaces Israel. So you can see where your understanding of eschatology can really snowball real quick. If you believe that, if you believe, hey, Israel's not important to God anymore, who cares what they do over there? A lot of our politicians believe that. It doesn't matter. But if you believe that God's chosen people is still Israel, even though they rejected One day the Bible says that they will return and they will acknowledge Christ was their Messiah. Okay? Um, If you reject all that, then it doesn't really matter what they do over there in their wars or whatever. But the Bible issues several proclamations. If you're going to stand for Israel, then you're on the side of God's blessing. If you go against Israel, you will be under God's judgment. I believe that to be true. And I see that we see that played out in our own history as a nation. And there will come a day when all nations will turn on Israel. I don't think we're there yet, obviously. But they believe it doesn't matter because, you know what, the church has replaced Israel. So all the promises to Israel are now the churches. And that's a whole other subject, which is massive. But uh, David Hawking does some good teaching on replacement theology and really tells you scripturally how wrong it is. And you can search that out on the Internet. But... um, they would say that, that Christ is the true Israel and the true temple is where God dwells in his people. See, there's, there's some truth in some of those things that they say, right? But you can't carry it to the extent that they do. Um, so some amillennialists like uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful theologian and pastor, teacher, uh, he, he was an amillennialist. Uh, He believes that Romans 11 teaches that there will be a widespread conversion of the Jews before Jesus returns. But there are not two separate prophetic programs, one for the Jews and another for the church. He would put those together. So that's the amillennialist view. And it's it's, it's got a lot of issues that I wouldn't agree with. Thirdly, you have the post-millennialist and then you have... The premillennialists, they believe that Christ will return and to rule on the earth for a thousand years prior to the eternal state, just like the little graphic there points out. Now, it doesn't end there because even within premillennialism, you have different viewpoints. Okay, you can see why I'm kind of laying this foundation for you, hopefully in a way that you're comprehending it, I don't know. But it's important. So you have the post-mill, that they believe Jesus will come after the millennium. You have the ah-mill, they don't believe that there's a millennium. And then you have the pre-mill, who believe that Jesus will come before the millennium. And then he will rule and reign on earth physically for a thousand years. So you have two views under here. You have a pre-tribulational view, And they basically teach that Christ will return for his church before the great tribulation. And again, at the end of the tribulation to establish his millennial kingdom. That's what I would hold to. That's what our church holds to. We believe that to be what scripture teaches for the most part. It's also referred to as a dispensational view. 
you don't want to get caught up in all these titles because it, it's kind of ridiculous. But for the most part, it's, it's understanding that, you know what, um, that, that Christ will return in the clouds, as we're going to read, we will be taken up, then will be a seven-year tribulation. At the end of the seven-year tri- tribulation, Christ will return with his church, and he will rule and reign with us here on earth. We will have our glorified bodies. Okay, so that, that's very important. Um, and under that, you have another kind of a, a viewpoint, which is the post-trib or post-tribulational view. And that teaches basically that the church will go through the tribulation. There is no rapture at that point. In other words, we're going to have to endure seven years of hell here on earth. And there's a lot of examples in Scripture, and there's a lot of illustrations in Scriptures why I don't believe this. You think of of Noah and his family in the ark. Okay, I mean, they were spared from all that. And and there's, there's a lot of good reasons uh, to not go down that road. And frankly, I'm just praying that it's true that we don't, okay? If we do, guess what? I'm sure God will give us the grace to get through whatever we're, we're going to go through. But, uh, you know, I don't want to be ignorant about it. But at the same time, you know, like I said, there's good men all the way around. These, a lot of these people that believe these things, you know, are, are real brainiacs. And they all disagree. So it's like, you know what? You're not going to figure it out on your own either. But with that kind of as a, a, a very vast introduction, um, I just want us to, to, to just quickly here as we close, focus on verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Um, he's talking to the Christians there in Thessalonica who are very young believers, obviously. And you can look at this verse as a transitional thought. It has nothing to do with what he just taught. He's like, okay, next, next bullet point. This is what Paul's doing. He's changing the subject matter. And he doesn't want them to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about this, about those who are falling asleep. And we'll get into this um, next week. This is why I changed my outline, because I, was, I had me going through like verse 15 today, and I thought, there's no way I can do this so, <laughs> and, and do it properly. So we're going to end here. But I just want you to know that as you begin to read verses 13 to 18 over this next week, begin to really uh, ask God to help you digest it and really to understand, hey, what, what, what is Paul talking here? You know, I don't think here theologically Paul is giving a theological treatise on the return of Christ. He's not doing that. Remember, what, how is he writing, why is he writing this letter to them? He's writing his, this letter to them because he had a good report from Timothy, right? And so he's, he wants to encourage them, but he also knows that they have some issues that kind of need tweaked a little bit, and this is one of them. Because some people started to tell the, the Thessalonians, oh, look at all the, the persecution you're going under. You know, Paul's no here, not here anymore. Look at the persecution. Oh, you know, he says Christ is coming back, but ha, I don't know. Maybe you missed it. And so a lot of the, the young believers in, in Thessalonica were saying, wow, I know Paul taught us that Christ is coming back. But man, my family's going through it right now. Maybe we missed it. You ever think of that? You think how weird it would be like all of a sudden if he came to church and there was nobody here on a Sunday? You know, I, I heard a story of a, of a professor one time in college and he was teaching on eschatology and they were talking about the rapture and all the students thought they'd play a joke on him. And they brought all their clothes in, the shoes, socks, everything, laid them out in the place. And the professor walked in, he's like, whoa, because they weren't there physically, you know. And, and, and one day that is literally what is going to happen, what's going to happen. I mean, that's hard to comprehend in our mind. 
But you know what? That, that's what the Bible says will happen one day. And I just want to leave you with the fact that, you know what? You don't have to go into that time wondering, well, will I make it? <laughs> you know, because the Bible says very clearly that all those who put their faith or trust in Christ, right, will be saved, as we said. And if you're here this morning, or if you're hearing this message this morning online, whatever, and you haven't put your faith or trust in Christ, I would really implore you to do it now. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Don't believe the lie that Satan is selling you, oh, that's, that's going to take away all your fun. No. No. You won't find fun in the world. You won't. It, 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 it's fun, but it costs you greatly. And anybody who's gone down that road will tell you it's not worth it. And God says, you know what? I love you so much. I sent my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you. Won't you please come and put your faith, your trust in Christ. Stop trying to save yourselves. It's not going to work. Put your faith in the one, the only one, who can save you for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your Bible, that it's clear to us. It's, it's your message to us as your children. And Father, we pray this morning that if there's any who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that you would even now begin to work in their heart, that you would show them they can be sure of their salvation. They don't have to go to bed at night wondering whether or not they'll make the cut, whether or not they'll be taken up in the rapture when it happens. And Lord, as we begin to embrace this text next week and get into the nitty-gritty of what Paul is actually telling them, he wasn't giving them a theological answer as we kind of did this morning in overview. He wasn't doing that. He was, he was writing them as a pastor. He was concerned for them because they were concerned. They were questioning Did they miss this gathering together as the church somehow? And Lord, we pray that we don't want anybody to miss that, Lord. And we pray that you would save according to your will. And Father, we pray that you would just give us wisdom this next week as we go out from this place. That you would give us wisdom to share your truth with those whom we come across, Lord. That we would do it boldly. We would do it unapologetically. Father, because we know it is a truth. And Lord, we pray that you would take those words of truth and affect change in the lives who hear them. And Lord, if there's any who yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray even now they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want to give my life to you and follow you for the remainder of my time here on earth. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere, uh, repentful heart. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. Pray that you bless our fellowship across the way as well. And uh, we, we ask you to bless this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one, one last song.